0: Everybody and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast, where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking the Olympics with history lecturer Matthew Andrews. Here at Carolina, you teach classes connecting U.S. history to the sports world. When looking at history, how important are sports? Are they more than just games?
1: Yeah, that's a big question, right? Sports matter. Sports are important. Maybe sports shouldn't matter as much as they do. You know, Maybe professional athletes shouldn't be making a million times more than, than teachers, but the fact is they do, and so that's an indication that people really care about sports. Well, what I do in my, in my classes is I like to use sports to explore the important social, cultural, and political issues in the United States. So we use sports to get at race relations in the United States. We use sports and sports are a great thing to look at if you want to explore race relations, if you want to explore gender dynamics, if you want to explore the feminist movement. Not only is it a great window and an accessible window into it, you know, people are really interested to learn about race relations if it's through the story of a baseball or a basketball or a football player, but sports are an arena that are supposed to be fair sports are supposed to be based on the idea that there is a level playing field out there. So if you want to get a sense of how a particular group of people have been treated throughout American history, one of the ways, one of the best ways of doing it is to look how they have been treated in the arena of sports. If you want to have an interesting arena in which to study the, the major political tensions throughout the 20th century and now into the 21st century, all of these tensions are played out in the Olympic Games. And so the Olympic Games are fascinating because they're sort of built on this bedrock of contradiction. The Olympic Games are supposed to be not about politics. They're supposed to be apolitical. They're created in 1896 by, by a Frenchman, Pierre de Coubertin, and his idea here is we're gonna bring the people of the world together, the athletes of the world together, and it's gonna be sort of a political free zone and we're gonna foster brotherhood and you know, human commonality and all that great stuff. But of course, the Olympics, to participate in the Olympics, you have to represent a nation. You have to wear a national uniform. You have to represent a flag. So nationalism is everywhere in the, the Olympic Games. So all of the great international tensions sort of every four years, and now they've staggered the winter and the summer Olympics since the early 1990s. So I guess in some ways it's every two years now. But every four or, or two years, these tensions resurface and manifest themselves in these sporting arenas on the track in the swimming pool on the basketball court.
0: So you mentioned how the Olympics were really started as this apolitical movement to sort of foster peace between countries, but it definitely hasn't always worked out that way. For me, I think of the 1956 Olympics when Hungary and the Soviet Union just fought in the polo match.
1: George Orwell very famously was a big critic of international sports, and he said that international sports are war minus the shooting. And, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. On one hand, it is this place in which athletes from all over the world come together and sometimes friendships are made. There have been marriages between U.S. athletes and Czechoslovakian athletes they met at the Olympic Games. And, you know, so we see people coming together that way. But so often, it's the differences that are emphasized. And so you know your Olympic history if you're talking about 1956. In 1956, the Soviet Union invades Hungary. They are putting down a Hungarian revolution against Soviet domination. People are dying in the streets. And right then and there, at the exact same time, in Melbourne, in the early winter of 1956, it's the Southern Hemisphere, so the Southern Games were in our our winter, Hungary and the Soviet Union meet in the medal round of a water polo contest and fists flew and blood flowed, as the saying goes. The pool was red with blood. This sporting event did not bring Hungarians and Soviets together. This sporting event only exacerbated the problems.
0: Another one that comes to mind is Smith and Carlos and when they raised their fists on the podium in support of civil rights. What are some other times that culture or politics of a country took center stage at the Olympics? so you mentioned smith and carlos in
1: 1968 right and so this is the classic example certainly looking at it from the us perspective when two black athletes tommy smith and john carlos in a what smith called a gesture of frustration raised their fists and bowed their heads during the national anthem in 1968 but we could go back to 1906 there actually was a, what's known as a Intercalary game in 1906 they were going to try to do the olympics every two years for a while and then they decided that wasn't a good idea so there were games in athens and there was an irish runner peter o'connor who was led to believe that he was going to be able to participate as an irishman but when he got to athens he found out that he was going to have to participate under the union jack the flag of great britain There's a lot of tension between Ireland and England at this time. So during the opening ceremonies, O'Connor and other Irish athletes very pointedly and politically wore green jackets to represent their homeland Ireland. O'Connor won a silver medal in a track and field event and the Union Jack went up the flagpole O'Connor ran to the flagpole, climbed the flagpole, tore down the British flag, and put up a green Irish Aaron Gobra Go flag as a protest. I am not British. I am Irish. That's a pretty obvious example of the way international tensions and personal politics you know, come into play. To me, I grew up in the 1970s and the 1980s. So when I think about international tensions, to me, the Olympics are all about the Cold War. In some ways, as a sports fan, the Olympics are less meaningful to me once the Cold War ended. I mean, that was the bummer of the Cold War ended, is that I didn't have the Soviet Union to root against, and I was taught to root against the Soviet Union growing up. But, you know, those intense political tensions gave the Olympics from 1948 all the way into 1988 you know,
0: so much meaning. When looking at something like Smith and Carlos back in '68. It's easy now to say that that was a big moment, but at the time, were people upset or confused that these athletes were using this platform to further their cause? My
1: understanding is that there was puzzlement for a few seconds, what are these guys doing? And then when the realization set in, like this happened in Mexico City, there were a lot of Americans in Mexico City in 1968, it was a very close Olympics. The boos just came cascading down. I mean, the immediate reaction was pretty negative for what Smith and and Carlos had done. The idea being that they were privileged to be athletes, they were privileged to represent their country. How dare these ungrateful black athletes air their nation's dirty laundry on the international stage. Now, of course, you know, there are a lot of people who were energized by this. The same people who supported what Muhammad Ali was doing in the 1960s, they were energized by this protest. And Tommy Smith makes a really interesting point about this. A lot of people, very famously, the the reporter and announcer Brent Musburger wrote a scathing editorial about what Smith and Carlos had, had done, saying that politics has no place in a fun and games tournament. The Olympics are not just a fun and games tournament. There's a lot of politics at the Olympics. But Tommy Smith's point was this, and I think it's an interesting point. In 1968, as a black man, he felt like he had no voice. Nobody was interested in listening to what he had to say. The only time anyone was going to pay attention to what he had to say was when he was standing on that medal stand after winning a gold medal. That was his one opportunity to be heard, so he took it. The Olympics offers people these
0: tremendous opportunities to make these gestures of protest. So we've been talking a lot about how the Olympics haven't really achieved their goal of being this apolitical event but there definitely have been times that it's brought people together, like when North Korea and South Korea marched together during the opening ceremony. Do you think the Olympics actually has the ability to bring people together?
1: The Olympics are so interesting because nations become validated if they can participate in the Olympic Games. Like it was a big deal after World War II when Israel got to participate in the Olympic Games, a brand new country and obviously a very controversial country. And so after World War II, obviously Germany is split into two. We have East Germany and West Germany. But Avery Brundage, the American who was head of the International Olympic Committee at this time, worked really hard to try to have a unified German team. It's the same idea as you're talking about with Korea. So in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, there was a unified German team team. The Olympics were able to do something that the politicians of East and West Germany themselves were unable to do. Of course, this team was rife with tensions and they ended up splitting again in 1972. And It's kind of ironic that that they're they're separated in 1972 in those those tragic Munich games. But yeah, the Olympics can bring people together. Um, The whole world tunes in. Billions of people watch the Olympics. The Olympics are the largest regularly scheduled gathering in the world. Nothing is bigger. More people watch the Olympics than watch the World Cup, actually, and that's because all the countries participate in the Olympic Games um, rather than the finals of the World Cup. To participate in the Olympics, your country has to have a national Olympic committee. There are actually more national Olympic committees than there are members in the United Nations. So, you know, in some ways, it is the most globally democratic space that there is. Every single nation has the opportunity to be seen and heard at these Olympic Games.
0: There are a lot of storylines heading into these games in Rio, like the refugees competing underneath the Olympic flag. As a historian, what are some of the stories that you think we're going to be looking back on several decades from now?
1: Well, that's a big one, right? And that's been something that has been controversial at least since the end of World War II when athletes in occupied Soviet territory wanted to participate in the Olympics. And Hungarians who had fled... The Soviet-dominated, their Soviet-dominated nation, Czechs, who had fled Czechoslovakia, wanted to be able to represent their their nation as well, and the IOC struggled over this question, like they're struggling over over this question. To me, the real interesting issue with the Rio Games and going back to the Sochi Games, really going all the way back, I think to Montreal in 1976 is this question of how much the Olympic Games cost to localities, how much it's gonna cost the people of Rio, how much it's gonna cost the nation of Brazil. The Montreal games are the first one that just ended up costing well over a billion dollars and there was staggering debt. And I mean, the the Sochi games apparently cost something like $50 billion. You know, a lot of people made money off of those, those games. A lot of Russians made money. There are a lot of people that are paying off that debt, and will be paying off that that debt. This is one of the criticisms of Brazil, right? You know, what is Brazil doing, hosting games like this when they have so many issues with healthcare and education and infrastructure and so on and so forth? And as we're seeing, more and more cities are balking from hosting the the Olympics. It's hard to find someone willing to host the, the Olympic Games. It's pretty much just all out in Asia for the next eight or 10 years. So that to me is one of the issues. You know, How much are these games going to cost? Ever since 1972, unfortunately, the issue of political terrorism is at the forefront of the Olympic Games. You know, I hope that nothing like that happens in Rio, but obviously with what's going on all throughout the, the world, this is a very real issue. So I'm sure security is going to be absolutely immense in those, those games. You know, let's hope that doesn't become the story of these games like they did become the story of the 72 games.
0: All right, so let's close out this podcast by doing what the founders of the Olympics would have wanted. And that's just talking about sports. For me, my favorite Olympic memory is probably also my first memory of the Olympics. And that's watching Muhammad Ali light the torch in Atlanta in '96. What are some of your favorite Olympic memories?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My memories of the Olympics aren't Olympics that I saw. It's the stories that my dad told me. You know, the stories about Billy Mills, for example, the the Native American runner winning gold in 1964, Smith and Carlos in, in 68, 1972, and the United States not winning the gold medal against the Soviet Union, getting absolutely robbed in the gold medal game and then for me the olympics that i should remember that really were in my wheelhouse because when i was 12 and 16 years old were 1980 and 1984. 1980 the united states did not participate in those games although so you know what i guess what i'd say my my i don't know if it's my earliest memory but my starkest memory It's And I care nothing about hockey. I'm not interested in hockey. Like most Americans, I'm not interested in hockey at all. But the 1980 hockey win against the Soviet Union in Lake Placid, I can remember standing up and cheering and chanting USA with a bunch of people, even though the game was on tape delay. The game actually wasn't shown live in the United States. That's how little interest there actually was in that in that game at the time I went to the 84 games the games were in Los Angeles and I was living up in San Francisco so my family went and I was a huge basketball junkie and so we went and saw almost every USA game Michael Jordan was probably the best player on that team coached by Bobby Knight but Chris Mullen and Patrick Ewing and Wayman Tisdale and Leon Wood that was an awesome team and the Soviets weren't there you know I wanted to see that team kick the rear end of the Soviets in 1984 which they probably would have done although the Soviets were were actually pretty, pretty decent.
0: So my favorite part about the Olympics, hands down, is getting to watch sports that I rarely see on television. If it's the Winter Olympics, I am not turning curling off. And in the Summer Games, I'm gonna be watching badminton and gymnastics, even though I have no idea what's happening. What's your favorite sport in the Summer Games? I love the track and
1: field. I mean, like so many people do. I can just sit and watch it. I mean, the steeplechase, what is that? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. But I will watch the steeplechase from start to finish. I absolutely love it. I don't even really understand all of the rules. Like, do you have to land in the water? Are you allowed to jump over the water? I don't know, but I love it. To me, the great event is the men's 100 meter dash It is the strongest of the strong, the fastest of the fast. I love all of the preening. I love all of the flexing. I love the way they kind of, you know, there's a show before the race even goes on. It's so fun to watch. I love the 10,000 meters. I think watching people run that race in under 30 minutes is absolutely incredible. The idea of racing over that amount of time and i'm just gonna keep on going you know i love the pole vault i don't understand it i don't know how people do that but i can watch that for hours and hours you know and there's something about it i love track and field i watch it once every four years right i mean maybe i'll watch a world championship here and there it's the opportunity to see all of these events that you don't get to see normally which is why to me all of this fuss about the tennis players and the golfers who are or aren't going to the olympics I don't really care because we get to see the world's greatest golfers and the world's greatest tennis players every weekend on 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 television they're just not representing their their nation but you know i get to see usain bolt once every four years i get to see mary decker slaney once every four years i mean so track and field to me but i'm with you if it's on you know badminton's on i'm watching i'm in
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast today, and don't forget to check back to unc.edu in two weeks for a new episode of Well Said.